0: Last week, as we kicked off uh, this series on the Bible, we started by answering the question, like, you know, what is the Bible? Just kind of a basic overview. But there's two things that I want us to key in on from last week because it, it helps set the stage for where we're going today. Because one of the things that we talked about is that the Bible is a revelation, uh, that is very important to understand. The Bible is a pulling back of the curtain. Of who God is, so the Bible reveals to us who God is. It's not up to us to determine what God is like. God has revealed Himself and who and what He is like. A lot of times, it's it's like we try to approach God from, well, this is what I think, and if if I was God, this is what I would think, or this is what I would do. It it, it doesn't start with us. It starts with God. It starts with His. Revelation of who he is pulling back the curtain and revealing himself to humanity through the Bible, but then also the Bible is inspired. It is inspired. The idea is that it really is from God. Uh, listen to what Paul says when he writes uh, his second letter to Timothy. He says, all scripture is inspired by God. How much? All of it. Everything in its totality has been inspired by God. And then let's go to Second Peter. Listen to what Peter says. Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. So it's not human understanding that wrote the Bible, and it's not even human initiative that wrote the Bible. It was inspired by God through each individual that wrote one of the books of the Bible. Those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit, and they spoke from God. So the two things that are really important as we go into today is is to keep this understanding in the forefront of our mind that the Bible is a revelation, uh, opening the curtain of who God is, and that it's inspired by God himself, because that leads us to the next question about the Bible, where did it come from? Where did the Bible come? Come from? It's a very important question because um, uh, when you have a document, when you have a book that's two thousand years old, the New Testament anyway, you've got an Old Testament that could stretch four to five thousand years. Uh, earlier than that, you're going to get questions from people that are like, look, all those years ago, I mean, how did this thing really come to be? Like, how did we end up with this exact document? And, and I got to tell you, right at the forefront, we could spend a lot of time on this, uh, just in terms of getting into a lot of the nuances Uh, and some of the historical aspects. But what I want to do today is kind of go beyond just looking at it from these people got together at this time and these people decided what was in the Bible and what wasn't in the Bible. I mean, that's very much a a part, but it goes much deeper than that and it goes much further back than that in order for us to have an operating understanding and confidence of where the Bible is came from. And the first thing we're going to start with is this understanding of the canon of scripture. That's one of your first uh, blanks to fill in if you're going to follow along and take notes, the canon of scripture. Now, what does that mean? Because some of you probably heard that term before, but what is it that we're talking about? The term canon is used to describe the books that are, one, divinely inspired... And because they are divinely inspired, they belong in the Bible. Now, one of the things that is important is how was a determining how was a determination made about something being divinely inspired, therefore uh, uh, having a part or belonging into the Bible. What criteria led to a book being considered? In the canon, that's a very basic fundamental question in understanding where our Bible came from. Now, I want to show you a map and I want to show you this at the very beginning before we start laying out this outline because I want you to think about this as we talk through these next several points. If you look at this map, Jerusalem is all the way down here. That's where uh, the day of Pentecost started in Acts chapter 2. We've got Tarsus up here. This is where Paul was from. We talked about Paul quite a bit last summer. But when you start to look at this region or this area and, and just how spread out these books of the Bible were, think about this, the book of Colossians right in here. Then we go up into this area called Galatia, the book of the Galatians, Ephesus for the book of Ephesians. Then you cross over into this region. There's the church at Corinth, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Thessalonica, First and Second Thessalonians, Philippi, uh, you know, the book of Philippians. When you see that kind of a region or that kind of a vast area to where these books of the Bible, these letters were sent... It really is a remarkable uh, thing that happens that these letters get sent so far out into different regions and they still end up being a part of what we know as the Bible. So in other words, these letters were being circulated, were being written, being sent, being circulated, but they are vastly different. Now remember, this is pen and scroll. Like, Paul didn't go to Kinko's and, uh, does it even exist anymore? UPS store. I just dated myself. He didn't run a bunch of copies off and take them, you know, to another region. Like, there was one copy of this to start with. That was it. Now, eventually, other copies started being made, but, but we're talking about an individual letter sent to an individual church uh, miles away from another church that would at some point receive a letter also. So as these documents, these letters, these books are attempted to be uh, uh, to brought together to organize an authoritative book for followers of Christ... What criteria went into the analyzation of each book, uh, the, 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 the study of each book, to determine whether or not it was a part of the canon? Well, here's the first one. The first and biggest and most important criteria. Was the author an apostle or have a close connection to an apostle? So, there's a couple of things. Now, there's not uh, uh, some blanks here. You may be able to find a place to kind of take a couple of notes. This is why this is important. First of all, Jesus said, The Father has given me authority. I am giving you authority. And who did he say that to? The disciples. Because the disciples were the ones that walked with him, they witnessed, um, they heard his teaching, they witnessed his miracles, Uh, they were witnesses to, to his crucifixion, they were witnesses to the empty tomb and to his resurrected body. So, first and foremost, to be in a, to, if the book came from an apostle, it's going to carry a lot higher weight because they were the eyewitnesses. Let me give you an example. You go out of here, and on your way home, you witness a car wreck. And uh, the, the state troopers or the sheriff's department is going to come to the scene, they're going to get a statement from you about what happened. Now one of the reasons that statement will carry a certain amount of weight is because you were there, you witnessed it, you saw what happened. But then if you tell me about the wreck and you tell me about what you saw, uh, and then let's just say something happens and it goes to a court proceeding, they're not calling me to the stand because I didn't see it. Everything I get is secondhand. Or if you tell somebody and they tell somebody and they tell somebody, now it turned into a 25-car pileup and 75 fatalities. (laughs) First-hand account, first-hand witnessing was vitally important to the way that the message of Jesus who he was, um, was being transmitted throughout that region at the beginning of the church. So the first question, was that author either an apostle or a close connection to an apostle? Paul was an apostle. Peter was an apostle. The book of James was, was an apostle. So, but let me give you one example of where there's the close connection, and this is the Gospel of Mark. Now the name John Mark shows up several times in the New Testament record, but Mark is not a disciple. Mark is not an apostle. But what Mark does is he takes Peter's account of being right there with Jesus throughout his earthly ministry and and takes what Peter has said and puts pen to parchment in order to give us the first a recorded uh, account of Jesus teaching miracles and ministry. Mark was written somewhere between 55 and 59 AD, placing it as the first of the New Testament books in terms of its earliest writing. And the author, as I mentioned, is John Mark. In Peter's first letter, called 1 Peter, he references John Mark as being his spiritual Son, So because Mark is that close to Peter, Mark's gospel was accepted pretty much as authoritative from the very beginning. People in the church knew who John Mark was. They knew his connection to Peter. And who was going to question Peter's account of what happened with Jesus in his earthly ministry so the biggest thing right out of the gate was it authored by an apostle or a very close connection to an apostle let me say this real quickly and then we'll move on a lot of times uh, if you watch something on the history channel or discovery channel or one of those kind of programs and they start talking about the history of the bible and they always bring up what about the excluded books What about the ones the early church fathers didn't want you to know existed? If you start to really unpack the history of a lot of these books that didn't make the cut, one of the things that excludes them really quickly is there's not a direct line of authorship back to an apostle. If, if, if the author is in question, if the author is not known, or if, it's, or if it's too long after, the fact, there's a lot of factors that go into books that were um, not considered authoritative and a part of the canon. And there's a lot of examples that we could go through, but for the sake of time, uh, I'm not going to do that today. The second criteria to determine something in the canon of Scripture is that um, is the book being accepted by the body of Christ at large? So, in other words, like once a, once a book is out there and and it, they are making copies of it and it is getting circulated, is it being accepted by the body of Christ at large? So, like if Paul you know sends a letter to Ephesus and then other people start reading it and they start saying, "Wow, this is really strong. This is really powerful. You can really tell that you know Paul's given leadership there and Paul's really thought through you know and and really felt inspired by by what he was." by what he was writing and the has got to be accepted by the church at large now one example of this would be the book of second peter at one point second peter was questioned on whether or not it was actually from peter one of the reasons why is that the style the, the writing style of Second Peter was so vastly different than first Peter because a lot of these biblical authors had a certain style and you can go back even into the original Greek and see how that style comes out in their writing. First and second Peter are vastly different stylistically but, when you start to understand, one of the reasons that that Peter um, was, was, uh, was writing this letter is that by the time Peter wrote this letter, number one, he was imprisoned in Rome, wasn't too many years away from being crucified upside down, and so Peter, Peter knew the end was coming, uh, more than likely knew the end was coming, um, but one of the things Peter wanted to do was to say to the people that would read this letter, know what you believe about Jesus, grow deep in your faith because there are false teachers who want to lead you astray. Hello. And so the more that people read the book of 2 Peter and saw the message of 2 Peter, the intent of 2 Peter, it became more and more accepted by the church as a whole. And those questions about its authorship began to fade by the wayside. The third criteria to determine if the book was a part of the canon of Scripture is that did the book contain consistency of doctrine and orthodox teaching. Now we don't use that word orthodox very much. Sometimes it's in relation to uh, certain branches of the Christian faith, like the Greek Orthodox or the uh, Russian Orthodox Church. We may hear that word, or you know. Uh, but but what orthodox teaching essentially means is that Jesus is the Son of God, born in the flesh, lived on earth, um, was sinless. Uh, died for the sins of humanity, rose from the grave on the third day, sent the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is the one that indwells every believer. If, if something starts to vary off of that, it's no longer orthodox. It's no longer orthodox in its teaching, in its foundation, uh, in its core message of um The Christian faith. So, does the book contain a consistency of doctrine uh, with with the other books uh, that make up the New Testament? And does it align with Orthodox teaching? Here's a good example the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews. The author of the book of Hebrews does not identify himself. There's a lot of speculation. There's several different theories about who wrote the book of of Hebrews, but we don't know who wrote Hebrews. So, automatically, there's like a little bit of a question mark about okay, you know, how are we going to look at this book? Like, we don't really know who it is. The author doesn't identify himself. That's very different than a lot of the other um, New Testament books. However, when you dig in to what the writer of the Hebrews is saying, there is a huge connection back to the Old Testament. It's very rich in its Old Testament doctrine and, and it is very clear in showing how Jesus was the fulfillment of so much of what God required in the Old Covenant. And so because of that strong theological underpinning, that strong doctrinal underpinning of the Old Testament and how Jesus was the fulfillment of everything God had required, it showed the doctrine and the, and the orthodox teaching. So the book of Hebrews um, was viewed as part of the canon. So the author, like I said, the author of Hebrews, he knew he, with his Old Testament knowledge and the finished work of Christ aligns with the other New Testament books. Then, the fourth criteria is, does the book bear evidence of high moral and spiritual values that would reflect the work of the Holy Spirit? So does it it show high moral and spiritual values that would reflect the work of the Holy Spirit? A great example is the New Testament book of James. New Testament book of James. James. James makes a firm connection between faith and works, however, it caused many to question its place in Scripture, because one of the things that some people wanted to read into the book of James is James was advocating, you work for your salvation, Now, there's other places in the New Testament that are very clear that salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ. It's not about our morals. It's not about our works. It's not about our ethics. It's not about being good. It's about, you know, trusting that Jesus is who he says he is and he did what he said he was going to do. James is not advocating for that. What James is saying is that if you have faith, you will serve others. It's an extension of your faith. It's like you can't have one without the other. Because James says, show me your faith and your works will back it up. Um, And so when you look at the rest of the letter of James, like James talks about the danger of the tongue. He talks about not playing favorites in our church gatherings. Like he goes on to say, like if you give somebody who's wealthy preferential treatment than those that are poor, you really don't have the gospel in you because the gospel is for all people. So when you look at those high standards and that reflection of the work of the Holy Spirit, then James holds up to that scrutiny. He holds up, the letter holds up to that text. So those are the four criteria, and those were, the, those were the ones that as letters began to be circulated, and look, there's letters we don't even know about, um, there's documents we don't even know about. I mean, you know, people that were, um, that were a part of the church sending encouraging letters or writing to other members of other churches or other churches in other towns. Yes, there were documents that did not hold up to orthodox teaching that, that reflected a different view of Jesus and a different view of Jesus' uh, divinity, and, 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 and they, they, they didn't hold up under that scrutiny. But these are the ones uh, that, that, as the Bible began to be uh, culminated and put together and circulated, these are the ones that showed divine inspiration to become a part of the canon of Scripture. And again, there's going to be those that are always going to question what about lost Gospels and lost letters. If you go back and look at some of the backgrounds of these letters, some of the teaching of these letters, it's not hard to see why they don't pass uh, certain tests and criteria. Now, on the back side of your notes, what I wanted to do for the next few minutes is also talk about Uh, some some very important details about the New Testament and speaking to divine inspiration and how we got this New Testament. Because we see that, as we talked about last week, the Bible is uh, two testaments, the Old Testament, the Old Agreement, the Old Relationship, the Old Covenant, versus the New Testament, the New Relationship, New Agreement, New Covenant. And there's vast difference between the Old and the New. But as we talk about this New Testament and and why did we end up with the Old Testament and the New Testament, like why didn't we just have the New Testament and not even worry about the Old Testament? Well, number one, Jesus is the fulfillment of so much of the Old Testament. He is the fulfillment of every detail of the law that God required, not to mention the numerous prophecies in the Old Testament that talked about the coming of the Messiah. And so when we start talking about this Bible that we have, one of the reasons we include the Old Testament with our Bible is that Jesus affirmed the Old Testament. Jesus affirmed the Old Testament. Listen to what he said in John chapter 5, verse 39. You search the scriptures, which, when Jesus is speaking this, would have been the Old Testament. There wasn't a New Testament yet. You search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. So Jesus is affirming. Not only did Jesus affirm the Old Testament, he cites... Fourteen different Old Testament books in his teaching, in his rebukes, and in his warnings. Fourteen. That's a pretty significant number. It's one of those things that stand out. Like if you start seeing a pattern, pay attention. So Jesus cites 14 Books. So Jesus affirms the Old Testament. Even Jesus himself said, I did not come to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill the law. So now we, now uh, the way we should read the Old Testament is now we read it through the lens of Jesus. We read it through the lens of Him being the Messiah. We read it through the lens of Him being the fulfillment of all that God required. Also, when it comes to the New Testament, Paul quotes the Gospel of Luke in one of his letters. Paul quotes the Gospel of Luke in one of his letters. In 1 Timothy 5.18, the second half of that verse, and Paul is actually quoting Luke 10.7. In another place, those who work deserve their pay. So now here's an affirmation of Luke's Gospel account. By Paul quoting it as he's writing and teaching Timothy and encouraging him as a pastor. So one of the things that we know to be true is that, you know, and we do this in human relationships all the time, like if if you're in a leadership position in your company or at work or whatever, and there's a leader that that company, you know, still talks about or reveres or respects, and you go, well, you know, as this person said, and you quote that person, it's like you're giving giving credibility uh, to what they've said. You're giving credibility to their leadership. So here is Paul quoting the gospel of Luke. That's incredibly significant. Number three, Peter affirms Paul's writing. Peter affirms Paul's writing. Listen to what Peter says in 2 Peter three fifteen and 16. And remember, our Lord's patience gives people time to be saved. This is what our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom God gave him, speaking of these things in all his letters. Now, if you go back in Acts, there were times that Peter and Paul uh, were at odds with each other. There were times they did not see eye to eye as the church was just beginning and just coming out of the gate and leadership and, you know, doctrine issues were being kind of wrestled through and hammered out. But listen to where Peter has gotten to by the time he writes his last letter. He calls them a beloved brother acknowledges that Paul is writing under the inspiration of God when he says the wisdom God gave him. Now, Peter was there. Right up until the very end of Jesus' life. Peter was one of the first ones to be at the empty tomb. Peter is one of those that carries the authority that Jesus said, I'm giving you that authority. What greater statement could you make about the ministry of Paul than what Peter does right here? Number four. Paul himself warns about false writings. Paul himself warns about first uh, false writings. Second Thessalonians 2 Thessalonians 2.2. 2.2.2.2.2.2.2.2. Don't be so easily shaken or alarmed by those who say that the day of the Lord has already begun. Don't believe them, even if they claim to have had a spiritual vision a revelation, or a letter supposedly from us. So here's what Paul is saying. Already, before we're out of the first century, there are people teaching things that are not in line with Orthodox Christian teaching. Paul is warning them, don't get get pulled into this. Stay true to what we have taught you. Remember what we have taught you. Know what we have taught you. Don't be easily shaken or alarmed i mean before we're even out of the first century there are people that were saying you know jesus wasn't really god or he was god but he wasn't really human he just looked like a human he had the appearance of a human there were already things that were compromising orthodox christian teaching and so paul is warning them to be aware and to know what it is that's being said and also not to be alarmed if someone says it's from us when it actually isn't. And the fifth thing that really affirms uh, the New Testament as a whole as it is collected is that the New Testament letters were to be read to all believers, not just the original recipient. Recipient. Let's go back to Paul again, 1 Thessalonians 5. He says, I command you in the name of the Lord to read this letter to all the brothers and sisters. So one of the things that we take from that is that um, Paul uh, knew that he was writing under the leadership of the Holy Spirit by the inspiration of God, that the things that he was writing on paper were from God himself, and that that letter was not just for the Thessalonian church. That there would be something there for all the believers, all the brothers, all the sisters. And so Paul is acknowledging, like, I wrote this letter to you, but it's not just for you. It's for all the believers. It's for all the believers who gather so that they can be taught, so that they can be encouraged, so that they can be rebuked, so that they can be led. So there was this recognition, this acknowledgement right from the very beginning. One of the reasons this is important Uh, to understand is that some of the writings that did not align with Orthodox Christian teaching, some of the writings that had a different view of Jesus could be very different based on the region that they were in. Like like certain regions had different uh, theological and Orthodox teaching challenges than other regions. And so these books would transcend whatever region they were in. And, and if you were Asia Minor and you got a book from the island of Greece, there was, there was still going to be things that would translate or, or, or would carry over into these other cities and towns and churches because the teaching was consistent. Uh, the foundation was consistent. The authorship was consistent. But it does lead to the question, why is this important? Like I've just spent like 30, 30, 30 minutes. You know, unpacking just some some very basic um, historical aspects of the Bible itself. But why is this important? Number one, because the Bible affirms itself. That's very important. The Bible affirms itself. Now, there are people that try to go into the Bible and say it contradicts itself. But unless you really know how to dig into certain um, historical, cultural, interpretive aspects, you're really going to find the Bible does not contradict itself at all. It affirms itself. And everything that we just walked through on the back side of your note card just shows you how the apostles recognized the authority that had been given to them by God, recognized that they were writing under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, and that what they were writing was for all believers everywhere, even us, 2,000 years later. So it's important that we have a book that affirms its very existence. It affirms its very foundation. It affirms its authorship in so many ways. But the last thing that I want to say about why this matters is this. Humanity did not decide on the canon of Scripture. The canon was given to us by God himself. That's very important. If you ever sit through certain history classes, or you sit through certain philosophy classes, or you watch certain things on television, and they try to make it sound like a bunch of guys got together in the 300s and locked themselves in a room and started chain smoking cigarettes and down in pots of coffee and said, We're not coming out of here until we got a Bible. <laughs> Sorry. God gave us his very words, and they were given to us in the first century. There wasn't a whole big other list of books or letters, and somebody finally decided these are the ones that make the cut, and these don't. However, we do have an analytical tool on how to look at the books that did make it, uh, that were a part of the Bible, that are a part of the Bible now, and there's a reason why they hold up if people want to start to question. There's a reason why others don't hold up if you're willing to do the research. One of the things that that happens, and this has happened time and time again, if there's ever a story that comes out that questions the historicity of the Bible, people automatically believe it. And if a story comes out um, that that gives um, a, a strong affirmation to the historical accuracy of the Bible, it's automatically discounted. And there's something in our human flesh that it's like, if I can find any reason at all to question the historical accuracy, the historical credibility of the Bible itself, then I don't have to believe it. And that's really what it ultimately comes back to. This understanding that God gave us these very words that became uh, the, the, the Bible as we know it. And when we read it and we study it and we try to align our lives with it, it asks a lot of us. And that is where the challenge of the Bible lies, not in whether or not it is true. Or believable or not but are we willing to live out what it says if you believe the Bible is what it says it is then there's a lot that's asked of you if you don't then we can pretend that it's not authoritative, that it's not, um, that it's not what it says it is, and we can live in whatever way we deem possible. But just because I don't believe it doesn't mean it's not true. And that's the hard place for a lot of people to get. It really is a book that holds up. Next week, we're going to talk about its historical and, 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 the, and uh, credibility, its textual credibility, how under scrutiny the Bible continues um, to hold up time and time. Again, I'm looking very forward to that message, and I hope you'll be with us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this word, this book, this Bible. Father, how amazing it is that you took a group of men who could hardly get along with each other and you galvanized them by the power of your spirit, the things that they witnessed in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. You inspired them to write These books, these letters, these accounts that guide us, that teach us, that encourage us, that rebuke us, convict us in every area of life. Father, that we would be willing to make a firm decision on what we believe about this book and then seek to live it out. Thank you, Lord, for the grace and the presence of your spirit to live the life that you would have us to live as guided by this book. Father, I pray for those in this room that have questioned who you are and have questioned, like, does this book hold up? Is it credible? Is it something that I can believe in? I pray that your spirit is speaking softly and confidently into their heart and their mind. Lord, that these questions would be what leads them on a path of discovery so that they can decide what they truly believe about who you are and what this book is. Thank you, Lord, for how you have revealed yourself to us. We are grateful and thankful for all that you are and the good that you bring into our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.